I'm happy to share this week's show sponsor, Cubicle to CEO, is one of my new favorite podcasts. Cubicle to CEO, led by Ellen Yin, is a mentorship-focused media company on a mission to make mentorship accessible to the masses so all women everywhere can pursue what's possible. Love that. In corporate America, Leadership Mentor helped me to quickly develop ways to level up my skill set for an upcoming promotion, so I am a mentorship believer. You know I started a personal brand and began podcasting last year. So I'm sharing this info about Cubicle to CEO with you because I only wish I had known back then about Ellen's weekly show and mentorship programs to guide and encourage me in those early kind of rough days. Her case studies, for example, are both inspirational and actionable. I recently listened to episode 143, which goes into the details of how the fabulous Dr. Tarika Barrett, the CEO of Girls Who Code, recently pivoted during the global pandemic and achieved enrollment increases from 1,600 to 5,000 students. Want to use the best income growth strategies from top entrepreneurs and CEOs, including Ellen herself? You can binge listen to past income reports on Cubicle to CEO today, plus receive free access to your first 10K month masterclass and a bonus workbook by going to our special link, zen.ai slash curious CEO. That's zen, Z-E-N dot A-I slash curious CEO. curious colleagues. In this episode, my guest is my colleague, Andy Greenewalt, co-founder and CEO of StoryHub. Andy and I share an interest in gleaning rich insights from consumer data, and I'm excited to hear how his recent startup is looking to take this effort to the next level for mission-driven DTC brands. So let's get into it. Hello, Andy, and welcome to the podcast. How are you doing, Denise? Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor. Of course. So let's start with you sharing a little bit about yourself. Sure, sure. So, um, uh, you know, Andy Greenwald, I, I live in uh, in Fairfield, Connecticut. So, uh, you know, and been a serial entrepreneur, uh, aka I was a really bad employee. So uh, I ended up uh, starting starting businesses. And um, it's really been, uh, you know, software as a service has been where where my my passions have lied because you know as as technology changes, there are all of these you know interesting opportunities that present themselves. And so over the years, I've built you know built uh, built a number of great businesses serving thousands of customers. And uh, and so uh, uh, by academic background, I was a philosopher and cognitive linguist, so a bit of a bit of an odd duck. Um, and uh, you know, student of uh, history, foodie dog lover, uh, you know, all, all of those things, dad. Uh, so, oh. um, that's, that's a, 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 the quick background. In my industry, as I was sharing with you, um, in our pre-chat of consumer relations, you know, we hear this interest in storytelling with some of my colleagues as a way to really engage their internal clients, specifically the marketers and getting that spot at the table and staying at that table. And, um, you know, storytelling that is versus say data dumping or just running a report and, you know, pushing that out. But what, what is it in your opinion that makes stories 
the best way to communicate? Well, I mean, humans humans are wired for story. We're, 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 we're wired to, to understand, you know, event A, cause B, result in C. So we, we have these narratives that we, we force on everything that we see in the world. So by starting with narrative, then, you know, you don't have to do that conversion process. You know, I think that humans, you know, the, the, the real data oriented people, um, you know, often think more like Spock and less like Kirk. And but most human beings are, are wired to, to be in this sort of this narrative framing. And so by by telling stories, you're, you're putting the data into a very, very rich context that makes it easily understood. And so, you know, as, as anyone who's worked in journalism will tell you, you know, you got to get the hook and the hook is the, is the headline or the image or whatever it might be, because ultimately, you know, we're all bombarded with so many things every day. What's going to get that super, super scarce thing called our attention and and most data in its raw form doesn't compel us in any particular way. And so we don't we literally don't know what to think about it. And if you leave people in a position where they don't know what to think about something for, for too long, and by too long, it's probably two seconds, um, you know, they, they just zone out. So, so by, by leading with story, you're, 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 you're deferring to their human nature because that's the way humans are wired. So we, we've tried a bunch of other things, but they, they kind of don't work that well. Okay. Okay. That, you know, it totally makes sense. All right, a little a little sharing here. I am on the record speaking about data of um saying that consumer relations, consumer affairs data is qualitative at best. And our data is viewed, I think, in, in better light now, in my humble opinion, with all the breadth and depth of the social media channels and ratings and reviews. So I think it's become um a little, little bit more palatable, more accepted, definitely more accepted. What am I saying? Yeah, for sure. But, you know, qualitative at best still. It's it's incoming data and it's not representative of the U.S. population and things like that. So thinking about data sets and my consumer relations teams and, and colleagues looking to leverage these data sets, what are some of the limitations and perhaps opportunities that you've seen with this with this type of data? Right, right. So, so, so the challenge has always been uh, one of you know you you get your sample right. You get your you know you get your n your feedback of n, and that is some minority of of the total. It's some minority who chose to do this. You know, if it's it's the case of a survey, you know, they chose to do this. Why did they? You know, how, what was their motivations? Who are these particular people? How do certain people self select? And therefore, so there's a whole bunch of challenges with those with those data sets. Um, that, to your point, make them make them qualitative at best. So, so really, the perspective is like, okay, how do those relate to other things? And so, you know, this is, you know, uh, I remember talking to a researcher, and they're like, well, you know, you know, everything that you say is is longitudinal. I'm like, yeah, because life is longitudinal. <laughs> life happens over time. Yeah. And so, to to get a better perspective on what we do get, because you know, it's like ultimately, you know, people share what they share. And that's, that's what we have to deal with from a data perspective is how does that relate to the underlying behavioral data 
that is in their shopping patterns, that is in their, their, their browsing patterns, that is in their searching patterns. So what, what, what reality grounding can we get so we understand the relationship of those two things? Because really it's, it's, it's not for so many things, you know, uh, you know, people's passion about a product, you know, it, it, as, as represented by the reviews, let's say, um, I'm more interested in the number of reviews per unit sold than I am in the star rating of the reviews and what they said, because like it, it's a better indication of their passion about the product that more people went and said anything. And, and so, so you, you look at different things like that, but how do you know how many units sold? And, you know, in traditional CPG, everything's getting pushed through different channels. Do you really know what's, what's going on? You know, the, 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 the retailers can be very, very uh, private about their own data. And so it leaves you with a sort of chopped up, um, chopped up visibility, which, which ultimately is, is, as we'll talk about with direct to consumer was, you know, one of the, one of the keys there is, is reassembling Humpty Dumpty, <laughs> you know, right. you know, the, <laughs> the data is shattered. Yeah. See the storytelling right there. You're exhibiting why I'm listening to you. Right down to the Humpty Dumpty story or poem. I'm not sure what that is. All right. So you mentioned DTC, which, you know, to me, you know, is a little bit new and novel in that I've, I've been more exposed to the traditional CPG, classic C, uh, CPG, uh, direct to consumer, direct to the retailer shelf, right? Um, however, my colleagues and um, others that I know have been putting their toes in the water when it comes to e-commerce and DTC, and obviously all that's been going on recently has has accelerated that. So for you, why, why this focus on um, mission-driven DTC? And I think I'm quoting you correctly. Um, yep, absolutely. Mission-driven well, DTC organizations, yeah. So, um, <laughs> you know, uh, I, I, I always like to yes. start every conversation about direct-to-consumer brands with with the beer movement. So, so mm -hmm. when I grew up, you know, I'm, I'm old enough that I remember when there were about 50 breweries in the United States, and now we're flirting with about 10,000. So it, it's really cool when you see sort of this economic diversity and this, you know, range of choices and you meet these people that are so passionate about, oh, this IPA or this ale or, you know, I, I go I go yearly for a pilgrimage up to Vermont. You know, it's really cool. And so when you look at the direct-to-consumer brands, what you see is is thousands and thousands of little, little brands and wonderful businesses, um, but they're small. And they're small because they're typically passionate people focused on a particular area serving a relatively small community. But that relatively small community is, is, is a wonderful $20 million business, $50 million business. And they don't want to be a dom they don't want to be PepsiCo. Like they just, that's not in their, that's not where they want to be. And so uh, I am, I am a, I am a, you know, David and Goliath uh, folk. Uh, I, my tech companies were in the community banking space. So community banks are a small, small fraction of the total assets. However, they do 60% of all small business lending. So Main Street USA is banked by the 10,000 banks none of us know about. And that's really cool. So in the same way that that David Goliath side, like I love the the organic, again, mission driven nature of so many of these DTC brands because they're there to 
both provide a great product to a passionate community as well as as, as do some good in the world. So uh, so that's that's what drew me to, to the direct to consumer movement. You know, really powered by Shopify um, is the is the dominant platform uh, in the sure. sector. Yep, familiar with uh, Shopify just a little bit, just a little bit, um, but getting there. Can can you share? Can you share an actual example or a client, some client work of a topic sure. that maybe you were you were looking into with one of these DTC organizations? And and really, what I'm looking for here for the audience is, you know, what are some of the wins and next steps that informed, and sure. what challenges came up, if any? So do do share. Sure, sure. So let, let me let me just back up for a second and give a quick uh, quick overview of StoryHub and sort of what we're doing. Just because I think the rest of the conversation will make a lot more sense with that. So St- StoryHub is uh, we, we built a platform. So if you think about what's inside the intelligence systems inside of the largest brands in the world, they have they have all of the data lakes and data warehouses and all of the technology and all of the data scientists and researchers and, and they have all of that as as a capacity inside the businesses. Now think about these small brands that are out there trying to compete with them. They don't have that. And so StoryHub built that platform as intelligence as a service. So we wanted to create a platform where that data, that data dilemma that small brands have could be solved with one subscription. That, that was our, that was our dream. Let's build the, the, that which is inside of, you know, LVMH or something. Let's build that and let people subscribe to it economically. That would be a better, better situation. So, um, so in, 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 in working through that, we came up with this model of, because uh, we're sitting on all of the data all of the time. So we're sitting on the transactional data, the customer feedback data, the customer service data, the reviews data, the social. We're sitting on all of it all of the time. And said, okay, well, how do you, you know, how do you, how do you show that to people? You know, you can't, you can't just show them, you know, a thousand charts like that. That's not going to work. And so we, so our, our delivery model is a newsfeed. And so we're constantly, you know, again, analyzing all of that data. And we just produced this last week, we had our, our, our hundred thousandth story created um, out of our technology. So it's it's a news feed that that everyone in the organization gets. And if you think about Spotify, where, you know, hey, you're a little bit more into country music, I'm a little bit more into classical, whatever it might be, you get different things because of your role within the organization. So if you're in marketing, you're seeing one set of stories. If you're in, in product or, or fulfillment, you're seeing another set of stories. So, so we imagined a world where, you know, we could take all of the technology and the criminally curious and put them together into this, into this, you know, effectively the bat cave of, of, of intelligence and offer it as a subscription. So that's what StoryHub is, is, is all about. So, um, diving into a particular, um, so a particular story, um, you know, a customer, uh, in, in direct to consumer, if you lose a customer after the first purchase, they're gone. They're they're just they're gone. So so to try and find um, problematic experiences as close to the moment as possible and be able to deal with them, you know, can create a, a customer saving event which radically changes the lifetime value for that individual. 
And so one of the things that we see all of the time is as, as every brand is putting you know, all of these AI bots to work. And so we have a story that's, you know, your robots just ate your customers. And so it's, 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 it goes in because you, you'll, you'll see these because our analytics is literally looking at the conversational threads with, with, between the robot and the customer, you see the customer getting frustrated, asking the same question repeatedly and the robots getting it wrong. Well, you know, we might want to jump in and save them because they're getting eaten by the robot. With a real, so, human, with a real human interaction? Is that what you mean? Yes. Save yeah. the, uh, yes. okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, with a real human interaction, it, it's, you know, so we escalate a story like that to, to the, you know, whoever does triage and the support team and say, hey, here, here, here are the links, here are the people, here are the actual, you know, service events. So they're one click away in that story. It doesn't just tell them about it. It also gives them a link to go right into the conversation. And this and conversation, to- oh, excuse me, what was that? No, no, and the, the conversation might be happening in, in Zendesk, it might be happening in Gorgeous, it might be happening in Intercom. And so because of our integrations, we can we can get we can get people to to those points where they're needed. Because ultimately it's about rescuing your, you know, for in, in this particular case, it's about rescuing customers. What how how then, because I'm I'm way in over my head, I've already said this to you. Um, and I'm probably missing a piece. So saving that interaction, what if you had a, a robot or even a human monitoring that channel? And when they see a, a frustration come up, they're just looking at it. They're moderating that channel all the time. So what what am I missing in terms of, um, what am I missing? So, so it, it, what you're what you're missing um, probably is is that when you when you see these things, there you're you're looking at them at at two or more different altitudes at the same time. The one is, hey, we, our robot is currently you know having a, giving Denise a bad experience. That's that's one thing. The second level is that particular kind of of conversation is like chronically problematic. So it's not just Denise, it's Denise and 700 other people were also chewed up by the same thing. So you're both sending a story to someone tactically saying, help Denise right now, because if we can just intervene, we can keep Denise from having a horrible customer ending experience and give her a good one. But oh, by the way, whoever's in charge of the uh, of the bot needs to change its interactions on this thing because its interventions aren't working right now. So you're so you're you're constantly looking at multiple altitudes. Okay, that helps. I think what might also help me and perhaps the our our audience is let's talk about one of your uh, clients and how you sure. kind of put this to the to use for them if you if you can share. Sure. Sure. So, um, so there are. Uh, so, if you think about the the analytics around uh, products, so there are certain products. You know, products are made in batches, and you know they're engineered to a standard, and the quality it should should work in a certain way. So, as you're looking at data, um, you, you know, one of the things that we look at is how many units get sold, and how many units get returned, and how many units get service. You know, service against them, and so that that's an indication. Of the customer's happiness because if the customer was really happy they would buy the product keep the product rave about the product and you'd never hear from them again until they showed up to buy the next product and so um so with uh with with uh, some of our customers um what we're looking at are virtually all of our customers we're looking at that 
ratio. So how many customers that bought a particular product went on to return it or buy a subsequent product? And so that's, those are the analytic models because what we're looking for is, is ultimately for customers to be, we, we think of customers as brand curious, brand engaged, or brand committed. And so depending upon the product set, it, you know, what, what makes them these things will vary. But what we're looking for is why did a customer who, who chose to, who found us sufficiently interesting that they came and bought from us once, um, why didn't they do it again? And as it turns out, there was like a third of the products that this company sold that that were like four times more likely to have, you know, one and done customers than than, you know, re-engaged customers. So it's like, what is it about those products that make that different? Because like nothing on the surface of it you know, it, it looks different. And so, so the analytics is, you know, come into play to say, okay, what was different about those? Was anything different about the customer cohorts that happened to buy that? You know, was it, was it the, the customer choosing the product or the product choosing the customer? So you're, so, so from, from a data perspective, that's why it's so important to have all of these data sets because just looking at the reviews as an example, or just looking at social as an example, you, you, you need those, you need the behavioral element, you know, what did they buy? When did they buy it? Who, you know, did they buy again? You know, and again, generally characterizing their behaviors, you need to knit all of that data together to be able to tell a story that people who buy product X will never buy another product again. And so, like, how do we fix that? You know, do we do we discontinue those products? Do we change those products? What do we do about that? So, those are um, the, the the sort of details that we're we're pulling apart with our analytic models, and then they'll just get a story <laughs> that says these three products are are causing churn. You know, you know, one hundred and twenty percent of the time, and uh, and so it'll be that. And so that will, uh, those are kind of examples of stories. How can people contact you if they want to learn more about what's going on with StoryHub? Oh, you can find us at Mm -hmm. storyhub.ai. My email is andy at storyhub.ai. And, um, you know, we're, we're, we're thrilled, uh, thrilled to talk, thrilled to talk to everyone. And, you know, certainly the, the, the curious people that, uh, that uh, in and around uh, customers and that are, are exactly where, where we live every day. And we're at the end of the podcast, Andy, sadly. Okay. I'm wondering if you have a volunteer organization you'd like to give a shout out to. Uh, I would, I would. The, um, so there was a volunteer organization that, uh, that my wife and I supported. It was the Monroe uh, Playground Association. So there was a community-built playground uh, 25, 30 years ago in Monroe, Connecticut, where we, where we raised our family. Mm-hmm. And it had come to the end of its life. And so uh, my, my wife, Jennifer, was on the board and with, with a passionate group of people, and they raised over half a million dollars. And it just got, just got done being built. And to watch the kids playing on it was oh. just uh, absolutely magical. And, uh, and uh, as well as doing work with um, a group called Social Venture Partners mm-hmm. uh, that we do work uh, with, with in, in the state of Connecticut on, on workforce, uh, workforce, really closing the gap because um, mm-hmm. Connecticut is a very wealthy state, but we have, we have some real challenges in our cities. So uh, we're, I work with social venture partners uh, as well to, to work on okay. those things. So those are, those, are my, th- those are my two passion projects. 
Got it. So thanks for sharing that, Andy. I really, I really appreciate that. And thank you for taking time out of your Saturday morning to talk to me on the podcast. Absolutely. My pleasure. Wondering how this podcast was recorded? Well, Zencaster is my secret, and it does much more than just record audio and video so I can get the best content to you. Zencaster's aptly named Creator Network, and it's the perfect place for you to get into podcast ads and sponsor your favorite creators like me. Zencaster matches you with the best podcasts so your budget gets to the right audience and can maximize your advertising campaign budget. Post-read ads, like what I'm doing here, are the most effective form of podcast advertising. Zencaster works with podcasters to help create unique to them ad spots that create brand awareness and conversion. Interested in sponsoring this show or podcast ads for your business? Go to zen.ai forward slash my curious colleague one. That's zen.ai forward slash my curious colleague. Colleague is C-O-L-L-E-A-G-U-E and then the number one. And fill out the contact information so Zencaster can help you bring your business story to life. If you've learned even a kernel of an idea or was inspired by this episode, please consider rating and reviewing the podcast on Apple Podcasts. Be sure to share out the hashtag CPGCX because CPGCX really and truly rocks. You have been listening to the My Curious Colleague podcast with Denise Veneri. Thank you for your time.